thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your word. What a joy it is to have it for our delight, for our instruction, for our life. And I pray God minister to the hearts of all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, I didn't particularly plan it this way, but I sure, certainly am grateful to the Lord that my return would be in this particular chapter. This is probably one of the one of the most famous sections of scriptures that there is. Many people in the world know this chapter about love. As a matter of fact, there are many that don't even know Christ that might have this on a, you know this little pericope about what is love, you know, on their own refrigerators, even though they don't believe it. They don't believe in the source of that love. It's an important topic, and uh, certainly it's difficult to do justice to it in just one time together, in just one 45-minute session, because it's pretty exhaustive, inexhaustive, whatever. I don't know English, so I'm trying. The fact is this, is that everybody has an idea of what love is. When you throw that word out there, instantly what comes to your mind is how you define love, right? Maybe it's the way that you define love is that, oh, it's the way that my mom loved me. That's love. Or maybe it's the way my dad loved me. That's love. Or maybe it's my friend or whatever it may be. Hopefully, when you think of love and you're married, you think of your spouse, Okay, that, that should be uh, check that one off for sure kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a biblical definition of what love is. The Bible defines for us what God intends for love's love. It is the central theme from Genesis to Revelation. It is God's love for his creation. He defines what that is. And I believe that in the church in Corinth, they had some serious issues about how they defined love. 
And part of that is we have seen already, you know, for those of you who have been with us before I took my sabbatical and just real quick, because I even hate addressing it at all, but I, I, I am better. We still don't know what happened and why I had those incidences where I couldn't read and it mimicked a stroke and all that. We still don't know any, any solid reason for that, but I'm better. So we're moving forward and going on. Before, <laughs> bless the Lord, the, the Lord is good, you know, it's not about me, it's all about him, and the only reason I even address it is for your curiosity more than anything else, not, not for any attention whatsoever, as a matter of fact, I hate that kind of thing, but nonetheless, the, the point is this, that um, love, God defines love for us in his scripture because we have trouble defining it correctly. The, Corinth, the church in Corinth, if, if you've been with us through up to verse, uh, chapter 12, you remember that we dealt with problems that they had within the church at Corinth. They were very self-centered. It was all about them. It was all about the individuals. It wasn't about the church. And Paul is using this epistle to instruct them, and i.e. to instruct us about how we are to connect with one another, how we're to treat one another, and how we are to define love. Because when we read through this chapter, one of the things that we see is that the description, that the definition that Paul gives us is one of self-denial. It's not about self-ingrandizement. It's not about me. It's not about whether or not I am the one that's getting all my needs taken care of. It's about others. And it's about how I respond to others and how I treat them. Because to be honest with you, we all have issues in our life about how we treat one another, don't we? How do I know that's right or wrong, though? Because in a world that we live in today, the world tells us it's okay that you take care of yourself, that you make sure that you do not get the short end of the stick because it's all about you. The Bible says no. It's all about others. And it's all about God in your life making sure that the needs that you have are satisfied. And the fact is that from Genesis to Revelation, God promises that he will satisfy every need that you have. And he addresses the greatest need even from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when it talks about man falling from that state of being in communion and fellowship with God to making provision to restore it. And that's how he kicks the whole thing off. And then from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation, the last chapter, God is in the process of working in our lives this relationship with him. And so Paul knew that it was necessary that the people there at the church in Corinth had a good biblical definition of what love was because they, like us, have a great definition of love according to the world. And we have a lot of influences, right? There's all, all kinds. I mean, from literature to movies to 
you know, whatever that comes into our life. The internet is probably one of the worst there is that's out there to purvey, you know, to, to give us those non-truths about what love really is. And so we must come back to the scriptures. We have to look at the scripture and we have to judge our own heart and our own life, how we feel, the way that we think and the things that we say based upon the scriptures. What does the word of God say? And if I'm loving in that way, well, then I can say, okay, I'm doing the will of the Lord in my life. And when you guys have risen up to the point like me to where you do it perfectly, then you'll be okay. And all those that believe that, stand on your head and we'll be fine. Truth is, I need, <laughs> I need this exhortation as much as anybody else in this room because I fail so short, I fall so short and I fail so miserably about loving, you know? And, and that's, why, <laughs> that's why the Lord gave me a wife so that he could show me how much I fail in loving others more than myself. Because that's, that's one of the things that he says in his word that he says that if you really love, what you'll do is you will love your wife as Christ loved the church. Holy mackerel. Couldn't you have picked a better one than that, Lord? If you, if you love your wife the way, you know, that you love your friends, that's going to be great. You know, if you love your wife, you know, in some other way, if you got a dog and you appreciate both of them the same, you're in good company. It doesn't work that way. God holds up a high standard for us that how we are to respond, that's a, an example of nearness to us, of course, our spouse. And so I pick on me because of the fact I'm a man. My wife can pick on her when she teaches this, uh, but right now it's me you have to listen to, right? So God lays these things out for us so that within the body of Christ that we know how to love one another when it concluded chapter 12, it had said this in verse 31, because they had been dealing with the gifts of the Spirit. Paul had been dealing with them. And they had an overemphasis on various gifts of the Spirit within the body of Christ, giving them greater importance than others. And Paul, in this chapter, corrects them and brings them to a place where he says, I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you something that is more excellent. He says, and that is love. Because any of the gifts without love are really quite worthless, to be honest with you. And, when we, and we'll define that love here in just a moment. What Paul writes in Corinthians 12 on spiritual gifts prepares the Corinthians for what follows. Paul directly addresses the specific problem in chapter 14. Some Corinthians desire for the gift of tongues more than the gift of prophecy was an issue. Prophecy is what Paul has in mind when he commands earnestly desire the higher gifts in chapter 12. That is the greater gifts. 
The gifts that most build up the church when the church meets together. To paraphrase, it would be, you are earnestly desiring the gifts of tongues, but you should earnestly desire more edifying gifts instead, like prophecy. But before Paul directly addresses that problem in chapter 14, he shows them here in chapter 13 a more excellent way, namely the way of love. The Corinthians were abusing the gift of tongues by wrongly elevating it as more important than other gifts. And just to make sure that you remember, in no way am I saying that tongues is not a legitimate gift, nor is it not important in the body of Christ. I believe that it is, but it is not the most important gift. And Paul writes to us, making sure that we understand this. He's not excluding that gift and saying, don't, don't even look for that one. He's just saying, don't think that that's the one that everybody's got to have. And if you don't have it, you're just not in. Because there are, there are actually churches that believe that. But if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not saved. So thus, you cannot be saved if you do not speak in tongues. And so that's a problem for some people. And Paul made it clear as we were looking at that in chapter 12, not everybody speaks in tongues. So it should not be an expectation that everybody speaks in tongues. But it's okay that some do. But don't think that everybody has to and don't think because you do, you're something special. You're not. You're just one that has that gift. Paul argues in chapter 14 that prophesying is greater than speaking in tongues because it edifies the whole church. The higher gifts edify the whole church because they are intelligible. In other words, we can understand them. When somebody prophesies, we don't have to have someone to interpret it as is required. And we'll see in chapter 14 that with the gift of tongues, that if somebody speaks in tongues, then it must be interpreted. That it can't just go on and somebody say, wow, wasn't that great? This person spoke in tongues. Isn't that wonderful? No, that cannot be. It has to be interpreted. Paul argues in chapter 13 that no matter what gift the Spirit enables someone to use, the gift does not profit that person unless he uses it in love. Love is indispensable for using spiritual gifts, whether the Spirit empowers one to speak in tongues or prophesy or to teach or whatever it may be. There are eight Greek words for love in the Greek language. The Bible only uses four. The first one is eros, which is where we get, uh, it's the desire, the physical desire um, for sexual love. Phila, which is affectionate. Uh, it's the type that involves friendship. Agape, uh, agape is often defined unconditional sacrificial love because it is used of God's love, which is unsacrificial. Uh, un, uh, yeah, unselfish, sacrificial love. Uh, and then there's storge, which is the familia love. In other words, the love that we have amongst moms, dads, children, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, that kind of thing. I'm not going to bother with the other four because they're not necessarily in the scripture, but if you're 
interested, I'll be more than happy to tell you afterwards about the other four words that are used in the Greek language. Love translates the, the, the Greek word agape here, and it is the quality of warm regard for the interest in another, esteem, affection, regard, love. Paul begins with three illustrations of how superlatives without love equal nothing. In other words, these things that we might hold up as being greater, they really are absolutely nothing without love. He then describes the essential love and compares it to other gifts. Love is not a spiritual gift. It is essential for using spiritual gifts. And it is more important than the spiritual gifts themselves. It is the more excellent way that Paul speaks of. In verse 1 of chapter 13, let's start into our text. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So Paul illustrates that love is essential for Christ followers by stating three quotations that begin with those superlatives that are very impressive. It's the most, uh, in chapter 13 and verse 1, the most impressive speech. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but yet I have not love, it means nothing. If I have the most impressive gifts in, chapter, in verse 2, but yet without love, I have nothing. In verse 3, the most impressive personal sacrifices without love is nothing. So if we do not, if our motivation, if our action that we have in our life and that we do is not motivated and powered by the love of Christ, then it really means nothing at all. It's easy to get caught up in the things that we do, whether it is even to exercise spiritual gifts or whether it is to take care of the needs of those who are in the world or it, whatever it may be that we have in our life, that we do it because we feel good. It makes us feel good about ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong that if I'm doing something as the Lord directs my life, that as I'm doing that, that I, that I find joy and that I find satisfaction in doing that for the Lord. Paul is going to line out for us how to define whether or not we are doing those things for the right motiv uh, motivation as we look at the, as we get into verses 3 uh, through 8, when he tells us that what love isn't and what it is. So that we can judge our own heart and our own actions based upon what God says in his word so that we know what is right and wrong. The tongues of men and of angels is probably a poetic way of referring to impressive, uh, aesthetically pleasing speech in every kind of language, including the speaking of tongues, the spiritual language. 
Also for uh, the interesting thing, of course, he says that if, if it is done without love, that what it does is it becomes an, an annoyance. If we're not doing it for the right reason, if, it's, if, I'm, if I'm doing it because I want to draw attention to myself and I want others to see what I am doing, then that's not, that's not motivated by love. I need to have that motivation behind it that is that I'm doing this for the sake of the body of Christ. Next week when we get into chapter 14, we'll see that Paul makes it very clear that tongues has a place, but it has no place without interpretation because there is no building up of the body of Christ without the interpretation. It has to be that people understand what is going on. And Paul says that people that come in, just like we have visitors this morning, if a bunch of you start shouting out in tongues and nobody, under, uh, nobody interprets it and nobody understands it, Paul says this, he said, they're gonna leave thinking you're mad. And I would agree with him. The truth is, is that there is that place for it. But without it, then it becomes an annoyance rather than than something that is going to edify and to build up and to strengthen and encourage those who are members of the body of Christ. Also, it doesn't matter how impressive the speaker is, that without love, it really doesn't matter. Prophetic powers refers to the gifts of prophecies. To understand all mysteries and all knowledge is to be omniscient like God. Having all faith refers to the most remarkable degree possible. But even if we have all of these most impressive gifts, we are nothing without love. Paul writes, but have not love three times in verses one through three. Love is not an object we can buy. Uh, To have love is to behave in a loving way, which Paul describes here by personifying love with 16 action verbs in the next few verses that we have here. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative, as we'll see. It is important to understand chapter 13 in its literary context. The passage is one of Paul's most well-known, especially verses four through seven, love is patient and love is kind. If one looked at only some of of Paul's words in chapter 13, one might think this passage applies primarily to marriage, an immediate, or I'm sorry, an intimate relationship that requires love in order for it to function well. And because so many people have chosen to have this passage read during wedding ceremonies, a lot of people think this passage is referring to love between a husband and wife. While it applies directly to marriage relationship, it applies most directly to the issue in chapters 12 through 14, primarily to the whole of the body of Christ verse 14 he begins to describe it for us he says love suffers long is kind does not envy does not parade itself and is not puffed up so he says uh, in verse 4a passively and actively 
he explains how love responds to sinful people. Love is kind. That's how, as Christians, we are to respond to sinful people. That's how we are to respond to one another as sinful people, because even though we are believers in Christ, we haven't reached, uh, reached a point to where we no longer sin. We find that we have to constantly be tolerant in the sense that we are to love one another and to deal and dwell with one another, even though we still have those shortcomings. Love is patient. And that is that it's forbearing, it's long-suffering, and it doesn't retaliate according to what it tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, and also 17 through 19. We're not to return evil for evil. And if we are, then what we are saying is, is I really don't have love in my heart. It doesn't matter what that evil is. You have to understand this. Because I think we are all willing to not return evil for evil until we judge that evil to be something that is so unjustified, so wrong given to me that I need to respond at least in kind, if not even better. But yet that's not love. That's not agape. And that's not the love that God calls us to. As a matter of fact, he calls us as Christians Jesus said it this way. He said, if somebody slaps your cheek, turn the other one to him. That's not easy, especially my background. Slap my cheek, I, I mean, instantly, my first thought is, I want to poke you in the nose. I don't just want to slap your cheek. I want to hurt you. And so it's a whole different kind of mindset that I have to have in my heart and in my life. Because it's nothing. I came from that kind of a world where everybody pokes each other in the nose when they don't like what's going on. So I live in a different world now. I, I, I don't live in that one anymore. And if I revert back to that, what, I'm, what am I doing then? I'm going back to my flesh. I'm going back to the way that I used to be. Something that God has no desire for in my life at all. And as a matter of fact, that's why he says that I am to be patient and kind towards others. Love is kind. It is that it's merciful and compassionate. It overcomes evil with good, according to Romans 12, uh, 20 and 21. That's why we are instructed on how to overcome these things. The description in verse uh, 13, 4b and 5 explain how love does not behave. A person cannot simultaneously do these actions and yet claim to love others. You can't do those things. So when I say this, you see, these, these are things that, that God over the years, especially many years ago, that would instruct my heart about where I'm at with him. You see, there have been various times in my life that I actually thought I loved people. And there's been various times in my life where God has instructed me, no, you don't. Well, how do I know that? I'm not living the way that I was, and I'm not outwardly doing the things that I was doing, but yet inwardly, 
I was doing it. And God says, guess what? For the Christian, it's a, it's a matter of the heart, which leads to the right action. It's not just the right action. I have, I have refrained. I haven't poked somebody in the nose now for probably close to 35 years, maybe more. I have to think about that for a while. But the truth is, I got to tell you, there's a lot of people I wanted to poke in the nose. And God has had to say, no, guess what? That's not how you are now. You don't live that way anymore. And you need to deal with your heart. And so when I look at these things in these scriptures, it causes me to examine myself. Not necessarily, well, I mean, okay, let's, let's face it. If I had problems with my outward actions in these things, I wouldn't be up here teaching the word of God. I would disqualify myself as a pastor if I lived that way. And some of you think to yourself, whew, it's glad, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. That way I can do this and don't have to worry about it. But that's not true. You see, we're all under that same covenant with God. The work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives is the same for each individual who calls upon the name of the Lord. There are some who are paraded publicly and we know that if we don't do these things, the embarrassment, the disqualification is a whole lot more than I want to bear, which gives me incentive to do what is right. And it's the same thing that I've told you before about accountability. Accountability is the greatest thing in my life because I'm accountable to you guys. For the last five weeks, I have not been accountable here. But it doesn't mean I haven't been accountable here. But I haven't been here before you. I haven't been each week seeing you, talking to you, and living my life out before you. You don't know what I've been doing, do you? You hope I haven't been doing anything I shouldn't be doing. But if you know my wife, you know I'm not. She won't let me. But the truth is, each one of us, we are, we are called to this. And we're called to self-examination so that our lives do not need to be paraded before others. God desires that the, the intimacy between us and him would result in a change of heart and life in us without somebody else having to view it. But it's wonderful when somebody else, you find that somebody else is watching your life and you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's like, yeah, thank you, Lord. You know, I've shared this story, I don't know how many times, you're probably tired of hearing it, but some of you haven't heard it yet, so the rest of you shut it off, the others can listen, but uh, there was a time I was in the restaurant buying some food to go, and uh, I'm sitting there, and it's a, a restaurant where they sell beer and, and such, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm ordering my food, and I'm waiting for it to get ready so that I can take it with me, and a person comes up to me and says, hey, aren't you Pastor Bob? And I said, well, yeah. And I'm looking at the person. I don't recognize them at all. I don't know who they are. And he said, yeah, I've come to your church a couple of times. Now, I instantly, I'm telling you the truth. I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I am so glad that I wasn't doing something stupid like drinking a beer. 
because that guy might have not said anything to me, but would have walked away going, what kind of a guy is that? Who says he's a pastor and a believer, but yet he's sitting here drinking? You know, back in the day, I would have done that for sure. But I'm grateful for that accountability. And that's the point is that the Lord shows me that even when I'm not looking, everybody else is and that I need mind my P's and Q's. And don't allow myself to stumble. Don't allow myself to fall into those places. It's a great, great thing to have in our lives. A great thing to have in our lives. Uh, we go on. Love does not envy. Covetous note wants what other guy, the other guy has. Envy is angry that the other guy has it. There's jealousy and strife among the Corinthians. We saw that back in chapter 3. But love rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep, according to Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 15. Love does not boast, which translate a word that means to heap praise on oneself. That is to behave as a braggart, a windbag. It's one of those things that uh, easy, easy to fall into, you know, bragging about myself and, and what I am and what I do when I cannot because anything that I do that is right is because of the Lord. Love is not arrogant, which translates a word that means to cause, to have an exaggerated self-conception or puffed up. That's what it's talking about there. Love is not puffed up or to make proud. This describes some of the Corinthians that we have seen already in verses four, or chapter 4 and also in chapter 5. Love associates with the lowly and is not wise in its own sight, according to Romans 12, 16. In verse 5, it says it does not behave rudely and it does not seek its own. It does not provoke, thanks no evil. Love is not rude or indecent. It outdoes others in showing honor. That's one of those things that it, if we're looking at our life and we're looking at our walk, and it's, I think it's not just enough that I don't do these things, but am I going out of the way to exhibit the qualities that are right before others, honoring others rather than my own self, and, and rejoicing when somebody is, is better. Hey, if you win a million dollars, I'll rejoice with you. As long as you tithe, it's going to be okay. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you should play uh, the lotto or something. That's, that's not right. The point is, is that we need to rejoice for others when God blesses them. You ever found yourself in that place where when God does something in somebody else's life and you're going, well, what about me? How, how come I don't get that? It's easy to do in our life. And, you know, I mean, it's easy to do when you're in ministry. Well, Lord, why are you blessing his ministry? <laughs> I'm a better teacher than he is. Boy, did I just hit all those wrong spots in love, right? To say that we can't do that or would not do that would be a lie. Flesh, man, it's an ugly thing. But it needs to rejoice 
for others. And we need to do that when a friend, when God blesses them and gives to them a better job or a, whatever it may be that we are not looking for our own, but that we are looking for God to bless others. It love does not insist on its own way. It looks for the interests of others. It lives in harmony with others. As much as possible, it lives peaceably with all men. Love is not irritable. Uh, it, it is, it's not, a minor perceived offense does not trigger an explosive temper. You know, I confess my sin before you guys always, and, and I would say that probably one of the, the things that I deal with more in my life is that than anything else. I can get hot really quick, and I know it's not right, and uh, I have to work on my temper all the time. And sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes I don't answer because I know what comes out of my mouth is not going to be pretty. So I'd just rather keep my mouth shut, let you suppose me to be a fool, rather than open my mouth and remove all doubt, right? I think we all would do well. That's what James says, be slow to speak and swift to hear, you know, and do not allow the wrath of God to build up within your heart, in your life. And love is not resentful. In the Greek, it, it does not count the evil Love does not strive to get even with others. And this is the negative way of stating the first description on the list, that love is patient. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Um, it's the posture. Love's posture towards evil and truth is seen here in this verse. It hates what God hates, and it loves what God loves. Love does not rejoice in the wrongdoing. It abhors what is evil, according to Romans 12, 9. Love rejoices with truth, and it holds fast to what is good. And, and this is what we need to do in our own hearts. You know, we, we should not rejoice in what's going on in a lot of what's taking place in the world today. There are so many things, so much evil that is happening, and it troubles me that it doesn't bother us as Christians that it's going on. Verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. And where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Love is perfect. All else falls short. Love is perfect. All else falls short. It, it bears all things. Love endures anything for the sake of the gospel. Love believes all things. Paul does that mean that, that love is naively gullible. Rather, love generously believes the best about others rather than being sinfully cynical. Love hopes all things. It wants others to flourish. We want to see love prosper. Also, love endures all things. Love never gives up. You know, you got you to gotta do a lot 
to me to get to the point to where I give up on you. And usually that's what happens just before God's going to do something in your life. It's when I finally say, okay, that's it. I'm done. So I've learned I never give up. I just don't give up. I believe God. I believe that God's going to do things. I believe God for all of your children who are not walking with the Lord, who have abandoned the faith. I believe that God is going to bring them back. I believe that his Holy Spirit is hounding them day in and day out and that he's going to bring them back. And I believe that with all sincerity and that it's not a false hope or a false faith. I believe that it is truth. I believe that God's word bears that out. And I don't give up and I pray at least two and three times a week over the list that I have of all my friends who have prodigals that are out there in the world. And I've seen God bring some of them back, which gives me encouragement. And of course, you all know my story with Katie. 19 years we prayed for her. And she came back to the Lord and now she's walking with the Lord and, and she's you know, leading the children's ministry. She's taking care of her mom and dad. I believe God. Because if you had seen my daughter, none of your kids are any worse than what my daughter was. But I know how the hound of heaven works. We do know this, though, that all these things, love never fails, but the gifts eventually will. And he tells us in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. There's a limitation that we have to this, and this is part of the problem with the gifts. And that is that you have imperfect people that are empowered by the Holy Spirit with perfect gifts that at times misuse those gifts. They don't. They think they're hearing the Lord, but they don't. And I'm confident of it, not because it's my opinion, but because the Word of God says so. And we'll see that more next week in chapter 14. We'll bring all that out and how important that is. Verse 10, but that which is, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So what is that which is perfect? The end of the apostolic age, there are some that believe that. That at the end of the apostolic age, when all the apostles died out, the gifts went away. The canonization of the Bible, and that is to bring together uh, the New Testament and put it in the number of books that we have in the New Testament. And of course, the canonization goes beyond that. It's both Old and New Testament. The canonization of the Old Testament was first. The New Testament came later. Is that when it happened? And there are those that teach that once we had that, we don't need the gifts anymore. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that. So that's not it either. How about when the church came into full existence? No. As a matter of fact, we see the imperfection of the church because we have the New Testament. It is written for us because of all the problems that were going on amongst the believers. All the issues that we have, these are no new things. They've been there, and that's why they wrote the New Testament to instruct us 
about what we're to do and how we're to act and all the things that we have need of can be found within those scriptures. So no, that's not what is perfect either. It is the second coming of Jesus. It's when he comes, not for the church, not the rapture of the church, but when he comes for his millennial reign on the face of the earth. There will be no need for gifts when he sits and he rules and reigns upon the throne in Jerusalem. Right now we see in part and the gifts help us to see and we hear clearly words of wisdom, words of knowledge and to have insight to situations that may not be obvious, heavenly languages and such. We have all these things, but they still will fail. But when Jesus is here, there's no need for those things. I can't wait for that day. If there's anything that I desire that, that I that is not a part of the day-to-day -day relationship here with God is that ability to have a conversation with God like I would sit down and have a conversation with you. Now I can converse with God and, and I do and, and God speaks to me at times too. But you know what? There's a lot of prayers that I have asked that I don't hear an answer for for quite some time. Now, if we were sitting across from one another and I asked you a question, you didn't answer me. Well, I'd either get up and walk away and be mad at you. Or I'd say, hey, what's wrong with you? Don't you hear me? You know, and you'd say, yeah, I do. But that's a stupid question. I'm not going to answer it. God could be saying all those things to me. I'm not sure yet. The point being is I yearn for that day of communion with God where I sit down with him face to face. I yearn for that day. And one day it'll come, and when it does, I won't need a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. I won't need tongues. I won't need prophecy. I won't need, we won't need healings. We won't need any of those things. But until then, we still do. We need these gifts in the church. In other words, there is things that are yet to be done that the Spirit wants to work within the church today. The Bible spells it out very clearly. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the church, that it was a fulfilled prophecy. According to Joel chapter 2, Peter went on to say that this promise, pro, this promised prophecy was for all subsequent generations. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit that gave us that gave the gifts at that time is still giving those gifts today and we are we're told here that we that that will remain the case until the return of the Lord when he will reign on the earth when they will not be necessary in or any longer I'm sorry if you believe that the gifts ended at some point and should have ended at some point. I, I'm sorry, I disagree with you wholeheartedly because nowhere in the scripture can you show me that that's what it says. What it says is that it'll continue to every generation and every generation is every generation. It's like those who think that the promises of Israel ended when the church came into existence. I hope not, because if they do, that means God will not be faithful to the church any more than he was to his people, Israel. 
His promises to Israel were such. He said, as long as the sun keeps going up and going down, my promise to you will never fail. It'll never end. It'll never cease. But there are those that teach that today. They teach that Israel has no place in Israel. They have no, covenant. They have no promise to the land, which is a lie. And there are those that teach that the gifts are not for today, but that's a lie. They're for today. We need the gifts of the Spirit within the church, and they're more active than what you may know. You know, we don't put up a sign every time a word of wisdom is given or a word of knowledge. You know, the, the flashing light doesn't go off. Oh, hey, somebody's got a word of wisdom, word of knowledge. You know, we don't parade it around, but it's going on, believe me. There's insight that takes place into people's lives by the Spirit. And it's for the edification of the church and oftentimes, <clears throat> excuse me, for the individual member of the church. These things are taking place, but we get freaked out when we start thinking about that God touches supernaturally and heals today, or that he may give somebody the gift of tongues and that he may speak through that that he would allow us to speak to him. And I'll define that when we get into 14 about the interpretation of tongues. It must always be our word to the Lord, not his word to us. His word to us is prophecy. Our word to him is an interpretation of tongues. We get all freaked out the thought of that. But yet it's something that's beautiful and glorious when it's done according to what the scripture says. The only time I have problems when it's done incorrectly improperly, unbiblically, unscriptural, how many other adjectives may I use? When it's not done in such a way that it brings glory to God, and that's probably enough. Verse 11 here, it says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. You know, Paul, uh, Paul is appealing to them to this degree, the same appeal that I will appeal to all of you. And that is this is that our, the process in our life of walking with Christ is to bring us to full maturity. You know, oftentimes I find people who tell me that they have been Christians for a number of years, but their walk with Christ is like that of an infant. They're still sucking on the baby bottle. They're not walking. They're not allowing the Spirit to challenge their life. They come to a passage like this, and oh man, that means I've got to do what? I've got to do this? I've got to do that? No, I don't want to do that. And they haven't matured to the point of becoming an adult, right? When I was a kid, you know, the things that I did may have been cute, but if I did those same things right now, you guys would think I was a Looney Tune. Right? I quit sucking my thumb two weeks ago. You know, the thing of it is, is that we need to grow up. And it should be our goal. I remember when I was an adolescent, I couldn't wait to get older. What a mistake that was. But truly, when I was 16 years old, I couldn't wait to be 21. You know, I had all these objectives in my life. You know, when, when I was growing up, of course, the first thing was a license. The second thing was to become 18, you know, to get out of the house, you know. And the next one for me was to be 25, believe it or not, 
because I drove truck for a living. And when you're 18 years old, guess what? Nobody wants to hire you, even though I had more experience in the seat of a truck than most guys that had been doing it for three or four years because I grew up with it all my life. I couldn't wait to get 25. That way they could hire me. I could get a decent job driving truck instead of for all the jippos. So when I hit 25, I kept working for jippos. <laughs> no, just kidding. Point is this, right? Now, the only way I was going to hit those objectives and those goals was that there was a level of maturity that came along with them. If I was 25 and acting like a 16-year-old, then still nobody was going to want to hire me. It wouldn't change. And so it is, too, in our walk of faith. If we're not growing, if we're not maturing, there's something wrong with our relationship with God. You should desire that, just as in my own family, I desired to become a young man. I couldn't wait to get out and get on my own because that's what men do. I couldn't wait to get a job and support myself. Unfortunately, I didn't know the Lord and I wanted to spend it on all the wrong things, but nonetheless, it was a part of maturing. And there are things within our faith that we need to mature in. And one of those is to stop acting like a child and to start acting like an adult and to grow up and do the things that we know that God wants us to do in our walk of faith. Not make excuses. That's what I did when I was a kid all the time. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Once again, the limitation that we have today, but that day is coming when those limitations will be removed. But he assures us of this, that in the interim, until the Lord comes back, or until we go to be with him, this we can count on. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest, greatest of these is love. Love never ends. It is everlasting. That's the, that's the message from Genesis to Revelation. Love is not a spiritual gift. It's an essential for using spiritual gifts. And it is more important than the spiritual gifts. So it is something that we should desire more than anything else is that we would have that love in us. The ultimate example of love is the triune God. For example, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God shows us his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. What a beautiful, beautiful scripture that is. It is impossible for a sinful human to embody love perfectly, particularly when Christians use their spiritual gifts when the church meets together. But the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in maturity and unity. That is, Christians must mature in love. Love for one another is the mark of Jesus' disciples, and according to John 13, 35. So Christians must grow to love others just as God unselfishly and sacrificially loves others. Paul says it best, the greatest of this is love. We, they will know that we are Christians by our love one for another. You will know that I love you because I feel really affectionate towards you. No, not really. It's how I treat you. What do I do? 
How do, how do I speak to you? How do I, what's my concern for you? How important are you in my life? You see, because each one of us should be very important in each other's life. And if I say that I love you, then what I'm saying is, hey, guess what? You are important in my life. I love you. I love every one of you. You guys don't know how much I miss you all. You know, you, you find out real quick uh, how ingrained things are in your life when you stop doing it abruptly like that. It was hard. Even though I went to other churches and fellowship with other brothers and sisters, it was wonderful. I enjoyed that. But each week, still, I wasn't here. It was hard. And that's because I genuinely agape you. It's not, I don't, I phileo you as well, but that's not my love toward you. It's not that brotherly love as much as it is that I agape you, but that self-sacrificing love of God. And that's the thing. It cannot be done in any other way other than through God's Holy Spirit in you, loving one another. God enables us to love the unlovable. And we should hold that up as a standard in our own heart and life. How do I treat those that are the unlovable? Because I run across them in my life all the time. But what do I do with them? And, you know, it, this kind of thing goes way beyond the outside of the church. It's out there in the world. How do I treat those that are out there in the world? Well, the greatest of these is love. And Paul frequently refers to the the faith, hope, love triad in his letters in Colossians chapter 1, also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and also in chapter 5. He mentions it in the final verse of this chapter to demonstrate that love is superior. The qualities of faith, trusting God uh, for what we do not see, and hope, confidently expecting God to do what he has promised, are temporary. Now we walk by faith, but then we will walk by sight when we see him face to face. Now we hope for what we cannot see, but then we will no longer need to hope for what we see, for it will be taking place. And faith and hope in these senses will be unnecessary when the perfect comes. But love never fails. And this should not be surprising since among faith hope, and love. Love is all an all-embracing virtue. The only love and only love is an attribute of God. It is his attribute. And we must repeat, we must not repeat the Corinthians' error. Some of them valued speaking in tongues more than prophecy, but when the church meets together, intelligible words are more valuable for building up the church. When we think about spiritual gifts we should, that we should like to have, we ought to earnestly desire what is most edifying. This is the way of love. So here's the thing. I've thrown out a lot of information this morning, but I'm hoping that in some spots it's stuck, that the Holy Spirit, you know, penetrated your heart, challenged you 
to examine yourself against what the scripture says is love and perhaps what your, your view of love might be. How does it need to be adjusted? What, what has formed your values as far as love? And if it's the world, you know, may I encourage you this morning to rid yourself of that. Confess that to God and get rid of it and allow him by his Holy Spirit to change your mind and your heart to what he defines is love. It is the greatest thing because it was the greatest thing that motivated him in order to save you and to save me. And that without love, we would be nothing. It would be nothing. It is the most important virtue that we can have in our lives. And it only comes from God, his Holy Spirit. You have to know him first, though. It has to be that you desire to know God in order to experience the love of God to you personally and then also to experience the love of God through you. So you have to be willing to make a commitment. If you're not willing to do that, well, everything I just shared with you was about a waste of 45 minutes to 50 minutes of your time. I don't believe that for a minute because I believe that any time the word goes out, it never returns to the Lord void, but that it goes out and it accomplishes that what it intends to do. And though you may not respond now, believe me, the Holy Spirit is big enough that he'll get you later. And I pray for that. But perhaps you're here this morning and you need to accept Christ. If that's your desire, if you know that you have sin and you want to get rid of it, I want you to know God loves you. He desire, desires to forgive you. And he desires for you to have a good, wonderful, productive life in him. And if that's something you desire, then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up right now. And I'll pray with you to a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior. I see you back there. Anybody else? Anybody else? I see you. Praise the Lord, Ricky. All right. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, please. Raymond, you too. I know, Raymond, you're recommitting your life to the Lord, correct? Ricky, is this a, is this a first-time commitment for you? you? You've committed your life before, and you're renewing your commitment to him? Praise the Lord. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray with you guys to receive that fresh infilling and renewing of the relationship between you and God. And uh, remember this, right? It's what you do with it that makes all the difference in the world. If you're sincere uh, and you start walking with the Lord, you're going to see great results in your life. I promise you that. All right? So repeat after me. 